I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This episode is where I'm just gonna go ahead and dedicate it to Vince. Because Vince <laughs> turned 14 years old this past week. Yeah. He's, he's our very own April Fool's joke. Vince is uh, our dog. For those of you who don't know, he's a beagle who we uh, adopted 12 years ago in London, Ontario. Mm-hmm. And for his birthday, he got a diagnosis of a slipped disc. Mm -hmm. So he's on crate rest for three to four weeks. Isn't that fun for him? The Fun for the whole family. But he's uh, a little knocked out by the medication, and he's doing just fine. A lot more treats than he normally gets. Yeah, he's, uh, he's definitely spoilt. You're making up for the crating. Yeah, yeah. It makes me feel really awful. Anyway, tennis. Today, the Miami Open concluded. At the Hard Rock Stadium, where the Dolphins play. This kind of makeshift stadium that we were going to go have a look at last year, but COVID had other intentions. <laughs> and our two champions are Hubert Hurkacz and Ash Barty. It's Miami Nice. You know what Miami Nice is? It was one of the original titles of the Golden Girls. I actually did not know that. I thought you but were going to be doing... A reference to the Miami is nice, Miami is nice, so I'll say twice. Right. I was thinking that too, but Miami Vice came out shortly before the Golden Girls, both set in Miami, and we got two very just nice winners, very polite young people who uh, are easy to root for. Take it away with the, with the WTA. Well, to set the scene, Indian Wells didn't happen this year. Miami went ahead with uh, a limited number of fans, and it puts it at a, uh, an odd place in the calendar when you don't have that double right so it was tough to attract a lot of top talent on the men's side because playing on a, a north american hardcore for just one tournament is a tough sell if you have to travel a lot go to europe to be on clay because the women then are able to go and do charleston afterward right in you know in the same country just a, an hour plane right away but it comes at a weird time in Miami because vaccines are starting to roll out in the U.S. much quicker than most places in the world. But Miami was having a huge problem with spring break. South Florida in general was having this huge problem. Miami Beach was so bad that the mayor instituted a curfew of 8 p.m. because there were just too many people out. COVID is still a huge problem while the vaccine gets rolled out. Benoit Pair loses in the first round and goes out and parties with no precautions as usual. So the Miami Open going ahead at all is a, you know, it's kind of a crapshoot. You never know what's going to happen. I feel like at this point, as far as COVID protocols are concerned, the majority of these tournaments are just, it's a hoping for the best kind of situation. Because if you recall, Leila Fernandez won her very first title a couple weeks back now at this point in Monterey. And then she boarded a flight to then play qualifying, first round qualifying in Miami the very next day. So what exemptions were made for Leila Fernandez to play that match? We're talking about coming from another country, international protocols. <laughs> like, I, I, I just don't understand. I, I feel like it's something that's just been glossed over universally in tennis right now because there have been a lot of events that have gone off mostly without without incident and so it's just you know well we're just going to try and slip in as many exemptions as possible to do as much as possible without people really putting a magnifying glass to what we're doing yeah and most of the really irresponsible players have already gotten covid and transmitted it to all their friends so they are not getting it again at least not right now. But when you have someone like Pear going out and partying and putting it on Instagram, like clearly there is no bubble. The, bu the bubble has popped. So I don't know. Honestly, I'm so tired. I'm so bored. I'm so existentially bored of bubbles and safety protocols and all the stuff we've been talking about for a year. I feel like Venus Williams now. 
I do not have the bandwidth. Wishing them luck. I asked you about what happened on the WTA tour in mm -hmm. Miami, and you took a four-minute Well, you have to set the scene. Obviously, we all saw Ashley Barty win her 10th title yesterday, her second Miami title. This is technically a defense of her Miami championship in 2019. There have been so many uh, conversations about Barty's ranking. And this was a, a good little FU to the people who were saying that the ranking was illegitimate. Why are they saying that it's illegitimate? Well, you know, the ranking system on both tours has been modified because of COVID, because of the uh, around 20-week break that happened in mid-2020, the fact that not all players are traveling, that so many tournaments have been canceled or postponed, etc., so her ranking has been stuck at number one for quite a long time, and she didn't really play at all in 2020 after the COVID break. But luckily for her, she had built up a huge mountain of points, one of the biggest point totals in, I think, the past five years since Serena was number one, having won Miami, Roland Garros, winning the WTA finals at the end of 2019, and those points were not coming off, right? Because those tournaments had not been played again. So, right, but she also was not playing. Exactly. So while her ranking was frozen, other players had a chance, in theory, to accumulate points and catch her while she was away. Mm -hmm. Naomi Osaka has just won two Grand Slams, the U.S. Open and the Australian Open. She has clearly been the best hardcourt player over the past, uh, what, like eight months since the return in August 2020. Simona Halep had a chance to grab number one had she won Roland Garros. But for the most part, people are looking at Naomi Osaka as kind of the true best player in the world right mm. now. I think a lot of factors play into the way Ash Barty is perceived. Folks don't think of her as cutthroat enough to be a number one, that she's boring. They're projecting her personality onto her game, which I find to be uh, completely incongruous. Like, fine, you may think that Ash Barty is boring because she uh, she's very even-keeled and she's not going to be brought into any drama unnecessarily. It's like she has a drama shield all around her <laughs> where, you know, if you're in a press conference and you're going to try it, she's already two steps ahead of you. Right. Like she's going to placate whatever situation you want to drag her into. She is very skilled at deflecting those questions that are asked to get sort of snippy, snotty answers. Mm -hmm. And she's just unusually chill for a tennis player, especially right. a top tennis right. player. And then you have a game which has a big serve, a big forehand, but a kind of a, a wonky two-handed backhand and a very good backhand slice. All-court game is able to play well at net, exceptionally well at net. I don't know how that becomes boring. I mean, I guess her demeanor in court may be a little bit boring. You mm. know, whatever, I think that there's a lot of baggage that folks bring to the table with Ash Barty, which then colors their perception of her. Or maybe it's their their prior perception of her that then makes them wade into this number one discussion and the validity of it with such fervor. Mm -hmm. And there, I mean, there are legitimate arguments going around this number one ranking thing. Of course, the rankings are not scientific. Very often, they don't define who is the best player in the world at this very moment. And it's unusual that points from two years ago are still on someone's ranking, but these are very unusual circumstances. So I'm not saying that the ranking system is perfect the way it's working at the moment, but it was kind of a human attempt to maintain some level of fairness and sense in a very strange 12 months. There was no way that an adapted ranking system in the middle of a pandemic was a going to be fair to everybody, B, going to be a true snapshot 12 months on of who are the best players currently. And I don't think that that was the design of it. The design of this rankings freeze was so that players could have some kind of protections built in to what they had achieved before the pandemic, right? And so now with rankings starting to come off in Miami, and we're seeing a lot of folks talking about how, well, this is what the rankings would look like if it weren't for the rankings freeze. Well, yeah, duh. <laughs> right. Like some people didn't play during the pandemic. Like something kind of major happened last year. 
a lot of people decided to play less. Maybe some people weren't able to to keep fit enough to maintain the kind of results to keep them where they typically would be. I thoroughly expected the rankings to look completely different. And now with uh, this this very specific moment where the WTA points are starting to come off, when Ash Barty has finally made it out of Australia to play. She's ventured out of Australia for the first time in a year to play tennis. And she shows up to defend a title and she does it amidst all this hullabaloo. Right. And faced a, a high caliber of players to do so. Saved match point in her first match against Kucheva. Played Ostapenko, Azarenka, Sabalenka, Svitolina, and then beating the talk of the tournament, Bianca Andrescu, in the final. Mm-hmm. So this is not only a list of impressive players, but very, very difficult hardcore players, especially in Azarenka, Svitolina, and Sabalenka. It was a statement win. Right. I liked... I don't want to dwell too much on the ranking thing because it is what it is, right? I don't think Naomi Osaka is at home screaming and crying that she's not number one. We, you know, Venus Williams has far fewer weeks at number one than someone like Caroline Wozniacki by an order of magnitude. Does that mean that Venus's achievements count for less? No, right? Like it's a, when you look at someone's career, it's a compilation of, you know, I really can't say that word. No. A compilation, Mm -hmm. an aggregation of everything they've achieved. So if the rankings are a little wonky right now, I don't really care. Ash Barty said herself that she doesn't have anything to prove, but quote, there were girls who had the chance to improve theirs. So I felt like I thoroughly deserved my spot at the top of the rankings. And I think that's kind of the harshest that you will ever hear Ash Barty speak in a press conference. But that's not even harsh. It's It's just facts. It's completely straightforward. It's facts. (laughs) Because Naomi did not play Roland Garros last year. She didn't play last year after winning the U.S. Open, skipping Roland Garros. She didn't play uh, over the past month or so after winning Australia. So there were these small chances and a player has to manage her schedule the way she needs to, the way it makes sense for her body. Simona could have grabbed number one. It was a lot more difficult for a lot of players to achieve the number one ranking just because of how far ahead Ash Barty was, right? And and Naomi has also this round one loss at Wimbledon stuck on her record because Wimbledon wasn't played last year. So there's no opportunity to make that up yet. Regardless of all this what-ifs and all the hullabaloo, Ash Barty has cemented her place, if not as the world number one, but as one of the absolute four best players in women's tennis and a player we should expect to remain so for the foreseeable future. She's got a team that she's very comfortable with. She uh, seems unbothered by anything that can be thrown at her. She's able to get over losses very easily. She suffered the loss of losing to, to Sophia Kennan in the semifinals of the Australian Open in 2019, a loss that precipitated the baby in the press conference, if you recall. <laughs> a loss that could mm. have lingered, could have had a psychological scarring on her playing in Australia. No, that didn't happen. She came back this year, won the Yarra Valley Classic, made another deep run at the Australian Open, and wins her second tournament here. In 2017, she made three finals. 2018, three finals. In 2019, her big year where all these points are still hovering on her ranking she made six finals winning four of them one in adelaide in 2020 and then two titles already this year so like she's she's consistently winning and making finals every year Mm -hmm. now her opponent in the final is really her opposite in terms of demeanor the way they carry themselves the drama level and it's true right bianca she is a star she carries a lot of theater with her wherever she goes and when she plays people talk if the decibel level on twitter is any indication of the star power of a tennis player roger federer is up there serena williams is up there bianca andrescu is up there (laughs) among 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 the the younger players among the top five i mean obviously djokovic is there too and nadal right the big three serena naomi and then bianca like how many other tennis players especially a tennis player with so little experience on on tour 
has that much energy behind them yeah as far as support in some ways bianca is a mystery because we have seen so little of her we saw her play basically one season 2019 where she won a lot and then kind of disappeared so we don't know what her body is like we don't know what the future of her career is with regard to injuries and that's all people want to talk about but it's cool that she's actually back and playing so we don't have to talk about that anymore Mm -hmm. because it's pure conjecture right now we can judge what we saw and what we saw is the bianca we remember this unusual singular competitiveness right this ability that very few people have to make magic when you're down to gut out these three set wins in ways spectators like huh what you know well part of it is a self-fulfilling prophecy because she keeps putting herself in these positions as well Mm -hmm. to come back um i don't think it's entirely dissimilar from maria sharapova yeah where she would continually find herself in these three set matches and then earn this reputation of being one of the biggest fighters on tour because she would win these matches a that she was expected to win and then (laughs) b that she had unnecessarily put herself in position to do now maria did that when she was much older later in her her career Mm -hmm. so i think bianca has to shore that up a bit right there honestly uh, emotionally not just physically emotionally how much do you have to be doing that every tournament right so i think multiple times every tournament (laughs) right so i think if she's able to get uh, some more reps and just be a regular on tour again that will probably work itself out but I mean, there's an energy that surrounds Bianca matches, and it's because she simply refuses to to lose. She doesn't want to follow the rules when she's down two breaks in a third set. And if you're listening and think that maybe it's a bit harsh to say that she's putting herself in these positions, it's because you watch her play and you know she has every shot in the book. Mm-hmm. You've seen her hit that slice forehand winner down the line and then have to pick your jaw up off the floor. When you see somebody able to do all this on a tennis court, you're left wondering why is she down 4-2 again in a third set? Mm -hmm. In this case, it's like one of her first tournaments back, right? So like you grant her that grace. Playing Muguruza and Sakuri, who are two very informed players. Yeah. Sorry, Bostormo as well. But the hope is, and the hope was, that after getting through this tournament without injury, she'd then be able to take that to the next tournament and the next one. And then you build some form and you build some comfort in these high-stress situations where you start to get a few straight-set wins. Mm-hmm. You know, you, str- you start to be expected to win cleanly. Yeah. And unfortunately for her, she had a new injury in the final of this Miami Open against Ash Barty where I believe down... 6-3 to love, she turned her ankle. Right. And that's just a, a thing that happens, right? I I think we can separate it from her normal state. <laughs> when you roll your ankle in the middle of a match, it can be really hard to continue, but it actually doesn't mean that it's a serious ongoing thing. No. She says it's not serious. She'll be on the clay. Right after it happened, she was walking and trying to like shake it out and, and see how she was going to react to it, if she could put weight on it. And the camera panned to her face and you could see her say shit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that. Not entirely. I think one more thing to add here is we're getting more combinations of great matchups on the WTA tour. We've talked about the depth in women's tennis for a long time. It's not just from 1 to 30, but even within 1 to 15, the very top part of it. We haven't seen a lot of those top players play each other yet. Part of why that is, is because some of them are still super young. Naomi Osaka is young. Ash Barty is young. The pandemic had happened. I remember maybe three years ago at the Australian Open, Ash Barty and Naomi Osaka played in the third round, I want to say, of the Australian Open. Mm-hmm. And we, bur- we both were like, this is, this is what the future of the WTA looks like. Right. Or this is a matchup we want to watch. Uh, we hadn't gotten Naomi versus Muguruza until recently. Azarenka is now back at the top of women's tennis playing some of these players she hadn't played before. You know, where the more tennis comes back to normal and the more these women play, the more we're going to see these types of matchups at the back end of tournaments, hopefully. And I was enjoying this final a lot before the injury happened. Mm. I thought that their games matched up 
really well to present an entertaining matchup. Mm-hmm. The men's tour without the big three is sort of inching its way toward this WTA parity. Yeah, kind of. You got two players in a final who had never been to a Masters final, who were ranked out of the top 30, which hasn't happened since like 2003 in a Masters 100 final, who were 24 and 19. And that's Ubert Ergach and Yannick Sinner. And at this tournament, you only had five of the top 10 players entered, which is so unusual for a Masters 1000 tournament. So Medvedev was the top seed. Tsitsipas, Vera, Rublev, Schwartzman all had great opportunities to win a Masters. Some for the first time. And that did not happen. I think the tennis community has been expecting Yannick Sinner for a little while now. And he came in to the final with, I think, a lot more hype. And dare I say, the tennis establishment wanted him. They wanted to crown him here. He There's has, a lot more expectation on his talent than Horkic. Yes, but Sinner also has deep connections uh, among some of the tennis elite, right? He's studied under Ricardo Piatti. He views Maria Sharapova as uh, kind of an inspiration and almost a mentor. He hung out with Murat Safin. He was asked to hit with Rafa. He's been given a lot of opportunities through Piatti. He's been groomed. Exactly, yeah. So I think... You know, when you listen to the commentators, they have a whole lot more to say about Sinner than Orkach. Mm. They know more about him. I mean, and his game is also more electric yes. than Orkach. You watch Sinner play, and it's especially at his age, the things that he's able to do on a tennis court, it's indicative of a player with a, just a super future. We were watching that semifinal, and the backhands that he hit... Like that's 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 just crazy. Mm-hmm. And he put on kind of a Bianca performance in that semifinal against RBA because he was down one three, down a break, and he just all of a sudden like lights up, starts going for shots that don't make sense. He mishit a forehand that whipped around and bounced in, and just hit like devastatingly powerful shots because RBA was playing well, but just a little bit too passive. Mm. Right, Sinner was able to find these opportunities where a lot of players wouldn't. And uh, for a 19-year-old kid, the attitude was just so impressive. He doesn't carry himself with the cockiness that one would expect or that we've seen from players with that kind of buzz at that age. Zverev. Mm. <coughs> oh, that wasn't a real cough? No, it wasn't. Oh, okay. And that kind of cockiness is fine. It's just, I mean, not Zverev, not him. We're not talking about him. I'm just saying he has a certain level of humility to him. Yeah, yeah. That coupled with the electricness of his game. It's a a rare combination. Mm -hmm. But for the winner... Yeah, Horkacz is a bit older than I thought. He's 24 already. He's become the first Polish man to win a Masters 1000. His uh, countrywoman, Agnieszka Radwanska, is actually a former winner of Miami here. But on the WTA side, it's not called a Masters, you know. He's the second Polish man to win an ATP title. There isn't a long-storied history of Polish men being successful on the ATP tour. Wojtek Fibak is the only other Polish man to win an ATP title. He actually won 15. Uh, and he won 52 doubles titles in the 70s. <laughs> this is, um, you know, it's a name that I'm not familiar with. And I was shocked to hear that he had won so many titles. He achieved number 10 in the rankings, and uh, one of his doubles titles was the 78 Australian Open. So he's a Grand Slam champion. But Feedback was interviewed by the ATP site just about, you know, what it's like in Poland right now with Sviantek and Orkacz. And Orkacz has been very vocal and supportive of Iga and being inspired by her. And they have this cool relationship back and forth that, you know, they view each other as inspirations. He also seems to be a good dude. You know, we're always hesitant to to say that publicly about any man on the ATP tour or any man in general. But the evidence thus far <laughs> shows that Mr. Hurkacz is on the up and up. Yeah, he's a very endearing personality. There's been this gif going around of him trying to kiss his Miami trophy today in the most awkward way possible. Yeah, I saw that. It was like he was trying to bite it in the midsection. <laughs> Yannick Sinner said today on court that 
Hubert is uh, probably his best friend on tour. And Iga and Hubert are just superstars in Poland right now. He'll crack the top 20 for the first time. I believe he's landing in at number 16. And uh, that's with the ATP still protecting some ranking points. So um, Mm -hmm. for Mr. Zverev, that must really piss him off. (laughs) Can we not? Can we just not this episode, please? We've talked about rankings more than enough. Well, no, because the very next thing here on the agenda is... Yeah, I'd like to move past that. No, I think we're going to mention it. Zverev, in press in Miami, Zverev said, quote, I could ask you guys this back. Do you think I should be seven in the world with how I recently played? You think I should not have moved one spot up, maybe? Maybe one spot, two spots, three spots? There should be some movement, otherwise the rankings are just the same kind of. Like, this is your classic case of, if it's not benefiting me, if it's not me, 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 then it's wrong, 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 wrong. Mm. I think he should be careful about asking what the press think about where he should be right now. <laughs> I think he should be careful about asking anybody where they think he should be right now. The title of this episode is The Messiest Person You Know Is a Man. Part of that is inspired by binge-watching several seasons of Below Deck. But like literally everywhere you turn in life, there's some man acting a fool. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a truism on Twitter, a meme that's gone around that the messiest person you know the most dramatic is usually a man. And it's true. And it's also just a kind of a rejection of the idea that women are too emotional for mm. certain things. It seems as though Vashik Pospisil may be a little bit too emotional to be a tennis player and co-leader of the PTPA. Um, because that's what we saw okay. in Miami. So here's what happened. Vashik's first match against Mackenzie McDonald. At the end of the first set, he completely melts down. It starts over a line call. He's down 3-5 to Mackie McDonald. First, he bangs on the towel thing and gets a warning. Then he smashes his racket completely and gets a code violation for racket abuse. Shortly after, he gets another code for an audible obscenity, which is a point penalty. And then on the changeover, this is where it happens. He goes completely off at the chair umpire Arnaud Gabet, who is a a recovered victim of another Canadian who almost knocked his eyeball out. Remember that? We're not supposed to talk about that anymore. Denis Shapovalov. Uh, You know, he's been completely rehabilitated mm -hmm. to the point where he acts a prince on court, which we know Mm -hmm. not to be the case. But this, I mean, Arnaud, man, I mean, he is like the White House in the War of 1812, under attack by Canadians. (laughs) Pospisil is then... At his, on his at his chair, and Arno is like, like, what's going on? What is this about? And then Vashek says, an hour and a half, the chair of the ATP fucking screaming at me in a players meeting for trying to unite the players for an hour and a half. The leader of the ATP, get him out of here, fucking asshole. Why am I supporting this fucking tour? You want to default me? I'll gladly sue this whole organization. And it was like, skirt. What? And like, Arno is like, up. what are you talking about? <laughs> the tennis world was like, oh, this isn't about a, a line call or something within the match. Like, something actually went on. The reactions to this ran the gamut. It was like, you tell them, Vashik. The ATP, those big bad bastards. You tell them. People sympathized with his plight of trying to get better conditions for tennis players. And then some people were like... You need to just shut the fuck up and do your job. <laughs> Honestly, my reaction has run the gamut as well. This is this is really complicated. Yeah, right? the, many and, things are true here, but the one thing that I keep coming back to is a woman most times is not allowed the grace when she's in a situation like this where you lose your blob at work. Right. He's at work and he's doing this other work business on the side and he's unable to separate the two, one from the other, and perform professionally in view of millions Mm -hmm. you know my my soul lens perspective when looking at this my gut reaction was you know that is really petulant and i doubt you would grant the same grace to a woman in that same situation of course men view women as emotional because they don't see anger as an emotion right so when men are angry it can be read as righteous as rational as important and and masculine, right? Anger is masculine. But when women have similar outbursts, they can be called shrill, 
annoying, emotional, hysterical. I understand, or I want to understand, what precipitated this tantrum. Because obviously there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. But I resent the way that the immediate response from some people was like, oh, just be gentle on him. Like, mm-hmm. he is an adult, right? Like He's 30 years what old. What did the chair umpire do? He's a grown man. What did the chair do to deserve that outburst, right? So if if there's stuff going on at the bargaining table, you got to keep that at the bargaining table and leave Mr. Chair Umpire Arnaud out of it. This precipitates an online campaign. Players are out here sending many different messages. Hashtag players voice. Very vague, weird tweets about how the players need a voice or we need to be united. And there wasn't a whole lot about why, why we're angry, why Vashek was so pissed off. And therefore, my main reaction to this whole episode is, what the hell happened at this meeting? Nobody has addressed it. Right? There have been a few, oh, we've heard from people at the meeting that Vashek was treated poorly and called ignorant and uneducated by Gaudensi, but that's it. There have been very, very few details come out about this meeting. And so you see this avalanche of players not even, for the most part, not even tangentially address what happened at the meeting, but just doing hashtag player's voice. Mm-hmm. Milos Raonic said... Player unity is needed now more than ever. Voices need to be heard, respected, and acknowledged. Don't try to silence them, but work with them. Hashtag player's voice. Now, I was particularly disgusted by that one because he's co-opting the language of survivors of abuse. And you think so? I think so, yes. This whole business of don't try to silence them, we need to hear them, respect them, and acknowledge them. That is, that is what that is. Mm. Meanwhile, he's not giving us any specifics about what it is that we need to be uniting behind, what it is that we need to respect, what it is that we need to listen to and not silence. How can we silence something that we don't know what it is mm. we're silencing? And like, what happened? I am, I'm just shocked that nobody has leaked the events from this meeting, that no player even secretly has called up a podcast or a reporter or some unscrupulous person who has a platform and said, hey, here's the D. This is what really happened at this ATP meeting. What? I am so confused. Where is the messiness from these guys? It's, it's just weird. The whole thing is weird to me because we've been hearing for months and months and months now that we need to unite. Well, you have. You have united. You have this organization. What the hell are you doing with it? It takes time. And it's more complicated because it's not recognized as a bargaining unit. It's not a union. It's a player's association. The ATP is not even obligated to sit down at the bargaining table with this organization, which is the key difference between a union and an association. I think that it would behoove the ATP to sit down with them. Pospisil said that he and Novak are still creating bylaws and looking for executives from outside tennis. And that there'll be more info to come in a few months. Mm-hmm. I think it's obvious that the Professional Tennis Players Association has a public relations problem at the moment. I understand that it takes time to sort of build a platform, build bylaws, especially in such a disjointed sport as this is, with so many different voices with different interests on different continents. One of the things that I've seen being a focal point of demands or or what the PTPA wants is more transparency. And I am absolutely 100% behind that. Mm-hmm. Because the structure of the ATP is a union of business interests and player interests at one table. Mind you, you might say that that was a dumb way to do it in the late 80s, 1990, right? That that was misguided. But that's, that's the way it is now. And, and it was kind of just the result of several different governing bodies for men's tennis. And this was like the mishmash that came out of it. Mm. The complaint is that the business interests always trump the player interests. And Etienne de Villiers says, he's the former ATP chairman, he says everybody distrusts everyone else. It's, quote, a rat fuck. <laughs> and that the ATP chairman spends most of his time trying to placate the warring factions within this this council, rather than being able to focus on doing things to actually grow the game. And that's cute, that's nice, but we also know 
within this article that came out by David Yafabellany in Bloomberg Businessweek that historically the men just have not been willing to budge an inch with giving women any piece of the pie to grow the game. So there was the, the, the one issue before of transparency as to how much money tournaments make, how their monies are divvied up, who's paid what. You get the sense that the players are being told, well, this is all that we have to a lot. This is all of the pie that you can have. But how can you know that that's true without seeing what the pie looks like? We've been talking about on this podcast since the month we started that putting the players and the executives and the sponsors in one organization is just a built-in conflict of interest, right? And there's no way that having an equal number of tournament and player representatives is going to result in an equal power balance between the two. Implied within the tournament side is sponsors, is where tennis's money comes from. The players are always sort of fighting for what will the ATP give us? What will they show us? Can we see the profits and losses statements from these tournaments? Can we please have a calendar that we want? Can we have a bigger piece of revenue built into our prize money? And so those fights have taken up so much of the airspace in the ATP that the ATP isn't looking for new revenue streams. I mean, they are, but they're not devoting enough time to being creative with how to grow tennis in the future, how to make more money. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of those ways may be to have men and women under the same umbrella. As you referenced earlier, the former CEO of the WTA, Larry Scott, presented uh, the ATP with a proposal that he projected would earn a billion dollars in revenue in the next six years. And this was for like a joint tour that could negotiate with media companies, tournaments, sponsors, etc. The ATP rejected it. Male players, you know, historically have rejected a lot of cooperation with women's tennis at large because they see it as taking money out of their pocket. From this article in Bloomberg Businessweek, quote, In 2008, Scott, still WTA chairman, presented the ATP board with a merger proposal that projected revenue gains of more than $1 billion within six years. Once again, the male players rejected the idea. Quote, it was almost a non-starter, Passerell says. The ATP generates more than three times as much revenue as the WTA, and male players have long believed that a merger would benefit women more than men. Quote, if they have to alter their practice schedule because the WTA is playing at the same venue that week, if they can't get a courtesy car at the same time that they wish because all of those transportation resources are being diverted to the WTA Players Hotel, those are things which are obstacles, says Weller Evans, who served as a player representative on the ATP board in 2019. Quote, they look at sharing a venue with their WTA brethren as a drain on the tournament resources that would normally be available solely to them. So in this instance, we're seeing people with insights into how the ATP has been run historically, tell us that one of the stumbling blocks to having more joint business ventures between the ATP and WTA, let alone a merger, is the fact that some of these ATP players really just put up with the woman. They put up with the woman at these joint events and see them really as an inconvenience when it comes to to resources. Like, they believe that they by right, should have access to everything first. And what is, whatever is left over, the woman can have it. I mean, this is like a scarcity mentality, and you see it everywhere, right? It's so much bigger than tennis, right? If you're in a privileged group and they start paying underpaid people the same as you, you feel that you have lost something. If minimum wage goes up and poor people or people who work at McDonald's start making uh, close to what you make, you are losing, right? And so that's kind of what's going on in the ATP. You're not taking anything from the men, but you're finding new revenue opportunities and paying more to other people who have also earned it. It's annoying. It's an obstacle. I don't think it's impossible to work through. The point is, the current structure of the way that tennis is run is making it impossible to negotiate and to get tennis in a good position. Like, tennis is one of the most popular sports in the world, Right. Mm-hmm. This article cited this study comparing uh, the share of people who identify as fans of certain sports. 
So this big study said that 15% of people around the world said that they are fans of tennis. And that makes it, you know, one of the bigger sports in the world. But comparing it to the TV and media rights across the world, tennis has 1.3% of that. So the challenge is, how do we take advantage of people who are fans of tennis and leverage that for, for better media partnerships, for better sponsorships? And the way that tennis governance is currently structured is a huge obstacle to that. And mm-hmm. so the PTPA just introduces a whole other thing to this. And and it could be so fertile. It could be so productive. And it might be. It, it might be in the future. I'm I'm just curious to see like what are the uh you know, what are the top five things that the PTPA wants to accomplish? Like what what is the mission statement? What are their goals? And I understand that they're working on this, but they need to hire some lawyers and a better PR person. That's it. They need to get their message out. Okay. Me looking at this situation, I can somewhat understand why the emotions have run so high on both sides with this. I can see where the ATP and Gaudenzi could be super frustrated that this is happening. When he first took power of the ATP, he said, I want to maximize money in this sport. I see that there has been such neglect in growing the sport and revenue streams over the years. And then we learn a year ago when Federer and Nadal spilled the beans on Twitter that the, the ATP powers that be, along with the Players' Council, were thinking of a merger. You know, And so I've always got the impression that part of Gaudenzi's MO was to expand the net, and that included the women as well. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm him, I have all these plans that I've run on that I've set my that I've set the tenure of my presidency on and then the bushfires happen then the pandemic happens and you can't expand the net it's impossible you have to find a way to pay players find a way to keep the tour going find a way to keep people happy and then you're dealing with the PTPA coming up in the midst of this so I, I get I get that frustration to a degree and the other thing is they decided not to renew Chris Kermode's contract but the guy that they chose to replace him after seeing many presentations was Gaudenzi. You know, some of the people who are on the PTPA were the ones who voted for Gaudenzi as the new head of the ATP. And so from his perspective, it's like, well, I didn't have enough time to kind of show, roll out all of these mm. plans. Like this stuff has just happened too quickly. Now, on the other hand, whether or not the PTPA is successful is not an argument against collective bargaining. So I do think that players uniting in a separate organization is actually a good thing. Is this the perfect incarnation of that? Probably not. But this project that's been happening over the past six months or so is momentous. It's huge. And it's something that we've been hoping for. You and I have been talking about for many years that tennis needs a union for players. So it's as a, as a fan and someone who is supportive of labor rights, it's frustrating because we want to support them so much, and they're making it very difficult. And listen, it's not their job to please us. It's not their job to have a good public image. It's their job to represent the players and fight for what this organization wants. Okay, it's their job to put out a better image when they're out here talking about players' voice and talking shit yes essentially and so it's not their job but it definitely helps like it puts them in a better bargaining position i think one of the other big off-court things that happened during the miami open was we got quite a few high profile players on record as to what their thoughts are on being vaccinated and whether they themselves will get the vaccine Based on some of those responses, it then became a pivot to, well, what are the tours going to do? Because clearly, tennis has a vaccine problem. And are the tours going to implement rules whereby they're going to require tennis players to be vaccinated for the tour to come back to some sort of normalcy going forward? Clearly, the answer is no. You have rescinded your Andrei Rublev stand card. Yeah, you know, I engaged in this conversation and then I deleted my tweets because I really don't want to be part of it. It's not interesting to me. 
I don't think the questions elicit much of interest aside from players being incredibly self-motivated and ignorant. A lot of them come from countries that are more quote-unquote vaccine-resistant than maybe the countries we grew up in, which could contribute to that attitude. Some of them have fastidious control over what they put in their bodies. It also highlights just how education-deficient some of these tennis players are. And that may sound harsh, but it's true. It's not to say that they're stupid, but they they perhaps lack the the critical thinking skills to be able to maybe come to an informed decision on their own. And I have a little bit of, of empathy for this when it comes to this vaccine question. And this may come this may come as a surprise, but think about your regular lives. Think about how many people you know uh, where it may have come as a shock to you that they were, as it turned out, vaccine skeptics, that they don't necessarily know where to go to get good information. These are players who their entire internet existence is social media for for a lot of them. And we know how easily misinformation can be spread and taken in on social media in the last, what, five to ten years? Like, that is an actual problem of life. Mm -hmm. So for tennis players to then struggle with this is not surprising. Right. The tournaments and the tours have shown sort of varying levels of control during COVID. What the ATP and the WTA want a lot of times is at the whims of the governments they're dealing with and the tournaments that they they support. So uh, the Australian Open, for example, has incredibly rigorous and strict safety protocols. Other tournaments in different countries don't have those same protocols. In Europe, in the US, in, in Mexico... And clearly, a lot of these tournaments are not going to require vaccines because currently they're not even requiring a quarantine period aside from, you know, getting your, your first negative test. We are starting to see some semblance of a policy take shape. Well, okay. So the Daily Mail and a few other places reported that they had an ATP document from the Monte Carlo Masters saying that it will exempt players from their second test if they show proof of vaccination. So the players will have to be tested on arrival, and normally they would have to self-isolate while they waited for the result. Players who are vaccinated would not have to isolate when they await the result of their first test. And then after that, they wouldn't have to undergo testing again. They would also be exempt from being considered close contacts to people who then show a positive test. So it then becomes a matter of... While they can't require necessarily folks be vaccinated to play, they can then make more freedoms available to players who do. And that's been one of the biggest critiques and cries and wails from tennis players in COVID is that they can't deal with the bubbles, with the quarantines, with the restrictions. They need their freedom. They can't be in jail like Bautista Agud was in Australia. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose what annoys me the most about some of the responses were when asked if they would take the vaccine, some players said, well, how would that benefit me, right? Uh, aside from like the safety and health issue, would I get more perks from the ATP if I got the vaccine? Would I be out of my hotel? Like, would I be at a competitive advantage compared to my peers? And that's just super short-sighted and incredibly disappointing as a human being. And what do you think Wang Chung is going to do when she has Pat Cash in her ear as her coach? Right. Pat Cash, who came on the internet to say, quote, At a recent WTA conference call, I was shocked to hear a heavy push for vaccinations. No alternate options to be heard. No information to players and their teams on what is actually in the vaccine. They skirted over side effects. And did they provide any advice on how to treat COVID? <laughs> there's so much in this and i don't even want to address it like I, d I don't want to address it logically because it's not you can go through mr cash's uh timeline and see the alternate options that he supports i w i sat there looking at that tweet thinking how i would respond if i was going to and then i saw that pam shriver had responded it was i don't know if this was her intent but it was an expert lesson in a subtle drag mm-hmm she said, quote, one of the silver linings of this pandemic 
is I feel I am attending a science class each day. I have learned a lot about how the COVID vaccine works and how well they work. The science and facts about the vaccine is easily found and understood. Right. So if you think the data on AstraZeneca, for example, is not very good, then that, that's something, right? That's a start. If you, don't, if you don't believe this causation versus correlation thing, dig into that. But if you think like a vaccine in general is a worse solution than like oregano oil or some shit like that, just please, please stop. Well, in his case, he's telling us because he quoted some bogus rubbish to tell us that, uh, well, according to this doctor, professor, researcher, it's actually gene therapy, not a vaccine. No, that, that is where the okay. shit is like oh. super dangerous. Well, uh, like how many times have we seen this regurgitated in the last few months that it's going to be altering your DNA? We mm. heard one of the players say that. Yes. Sabalenka said that. Sabalenka mm. actually said that. I wish why this is so frustrating, so boring to me in general, is that I wish people would just admit that you're a contrarian. You're not principled. You don't have any evidence to back you up. You're simply a contrarian. If everyone in the world was against vaccines, you'd be for it. That's why this is boring. It's probably played out in every pandemic in history. There were deniers. Not for any good reason, but because pandemics are existentially stressful. And some people are just going to be contrarian because that's who they are. It also aligns with previous political thinking. Like, this doesn't exist right. in a vacuum. <laughs> so, to the for, for Pat Cash to now come to the table and... And present this like, oh, well, I found, I found it. I found right. where there's holes in this story, where the WTA is going to ram through these vaccinations and y'all are being hoodwinked. I found the magic, as Gladys Knight says. <laughs> I found the magic. And it just doesn't hold water because we know what you're bringing to the table. Mm -hmm. We know what your, to be frank, intellectual strengths are. And they are lacking. Mm -hmm. But this is, the, this is what I think is the way forward. I don't think that the tours, given how many different auspices there are in tennis, I don't think the WTA and the ATP can say you are required to have a vaccine. Well, maybe they can, but they most likely won't. Because they'll get sued. Somebody's going to sue them. Uh, yeah. Sergei Skovsky is going to be it, out here contacting his third-rate lawyers. It might not be successful, but somebody will try to challenge it. Yeah. And so... The, the way forward, the way I see it, is along these lines whereby more freedoms, significantly more freedoms, will be afforded players who have been vaccinated. Yeah. And hopefully yeah. the work of the players who have taken the vaccine, Simona Halep, I believe uh, the number two and three Serbian male players have taken the vaccine, Krajinovic yes. and somebody and else. Mm -hmm. That the public displays of these tennis players doing it will then bring others on board. Mm -hmm. It's like when your dog does something you want him to do and you give him a treat. <laughs> it's positive feedback. That's exactly what they're doing. And I know a lot of people are out here, and you have done it, to say, well, a broken clock is right twice per day. Was, was the actual yeah, way of it. saying that's that? A stop clock is right twice a day yeah. or something like that. Uh -huh. With regard to Simona Hall, <laughs> that she's been so wrong on so many things and that... I'll be damned if I'm out here giving her credit for being the first and the most vocal about taking the vaccine. Well, you know what? This is actually very important. I know. And listen, so I'm going to say... If somebody does something you don't support, you can uh, you can big up that person you don't like just this one time. And, you know, this reminds me actually of something that I wanted to say during the PTPA discussion. And it's something about activism. When you're involved in activism or labor organizing you're often fighting for a goal that you share with people you really don't like. The people who are heading the PTPA just might turn you off. You might really dislike that person. But are you fighting for the same principles? Like, like are you working in the same direction? You kind of have to swallow a lot of that shit in mm. activism and in organizing. So again, I'm not saying that they're right. I'm just saying that, you know, personality sometimes... Uh, blinds us mm. to things that we should work together words, on in other words are you going to bite your own head off to spite your whatever i your, can't remember what, your emotions or whatever you're, you're <laughs> what gonna, does that say <laughs> essentially you're gonna make yourself suffer you're gonna ignore your own best interest to 
to satisfy the urge to hate somebody else, yeah. even though you yeah. have the same goal. And that's part of where the misogyny comes in with how the ATP has moved like violently yes. away from working with That's the WT point, in the right? past. Like, are you are you actually punishing yourself? Are you robbing your fellow men of opportunities because you refuse to work together with women? The numbers say you work together, there will be a bigger pot. But you don't think that they are worth the pot right. that they'll it's be like, getting. It's like, how will it be distributed? So I'm going to stay making $50 where I could have been making 75 but I think they're worth 20 so right. like that's just the way yeah. it is like it's really bad shit stuff like we need to to move past being so emotional about how we respond to things and actually like use our heads as limited mm. as some of us are with that type of thing mm-hmm. I, i'll be the first to admit i am limited in that way a few odds and ends before we close like a phoenix rising from the ashes like sands through the hourglass so are the days of gem's life Ooh. They went on a break very publicly. Um, They've done it in, twice. I think in February. It was a second yeah. one. The Instagram gets shut down every time they have a break. And they said, you know, we're best friends and this is what we need right now. They never say we've broken up. Mm-hmm. They've ju- they just deactivate the Gems headquarters it's for a little bit. Ross and Rachel on a break. But Alina showed up with a ring and this caption to the beginning of our forever. Hashtag July 2021. Not only a ring and a forever, but a date, mm-hmm. a wedding date. They're engaged. And I'm told, the sources tell me, that that big ring carries COVID antibodies. Stop. And that's why Elena does not need to get uh, the vaccine. Mm-hmm. That, that's what the sources told mm-hmm. me. I'll tell you, I am with it. Whatever Gem's life throws at us, however many times they postpone and reschedule this wedding, go on breaks, social media blackouts, whatever, I will be along for the ride. France has gone into a national lockdown over the weekend. The Minister of Sport in France says that the postponement of Roland Garros is possible. Now, major sports have mostly continued during these most recent shutdowns, and there's a reopening expected around mid-May in France, but... Obviously, this is germane to the tennis community. Will Roland Garros be canceled slash postponed again due to COVID concerns? And so right now, I we have no idea what the likelihood is. The head of the French Federation says that you know we're confident that it will go on as scheduled. So we shall see. But of course, people in the tennis community speculate, well, if it's looking iffy, which spot on the calendar will they grab? And will they act unilaterally again like they did last year? Barbara Streetseva has announced that she is pregnant. She's teased for a while that she could be retiring soon. Mm-hmm. That she was nearing the end of her tennis playing days. I don't know that this signals a retirement. And we've seen many times now where players go off, have a child, and then come back. Yeah. Vesnina, the most recent example. Barbara has very recently been the doubles number one. So she is still in excellent condition, especially on the double side. Best wishes to her. Best wishes also to Juan Martin Del Potro, who again had another knee surgery. He said that he had been doing a conservative treatment on the knee, but unfortunately the pain wasn't going away. And because he wants to return to tennis and play the Olympics especially, he's decided to undergo surgery. This is just horrendous news, again, yeah, for yeah. Del Potro. And this past week with that news coming and then Bianca Andrescu having a deep run at, Mi- at Miami, I saw quite a few people make the comparison of, well, damn, is Bianca the WTA's Del Potro? Right. Supremely a, a US talented Open US Open champion whose career was completely derailed by injuries. And of course, this is way too soon to tell, mm. but it was kind of like, a, uh, oh my God, I really hope that's not the case yeah. kind of situation. Because I don't think a lot of people had thought about that before. So let's not speak that into existence. And uh, best wishes to both Bianca and Juan Martin coming back. There was quite a bit on this agenda that we just kind of axed. Yeah, it's been a while since we've recorded an episode. Not all of it feels super interesting. So that those parts were excised. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of it we can talk about on a Twitch at some point. We're going to talk about the WTA releasing guidance as to how the women's rankings will proceed going forward. Mm -hmm. 
which I found to be fairly straightforward. Yes. And uh, more clear and more fair than the ATP. But, you know, that's another story for another time. It is just very boring to go through all the rule changes. There was a whole section on last week's winners, which at this point is like three weeks ago. We said Leila Fernandez had won her first title in Monterey. Daria Kazatkina had won her second of the year in her comeback. And that person whom you do not want to speak about ever again won a final. Yes. Next up, the WTA is in Charleston. And the European clay swing is right around the corner. Thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm Jonathan, by the Mm -hmm. way. I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Vince is at Vince the Beagle on Instagram. I don't think we've ever done that before. Vince got way more birthday love on social than we do when we have our birthdays. So, like, we know who is the best third of this setup. It's fine. I get it. Thank you for listening. Till next time. Thank Thank you. Thank you very much.